every time I think I've got my finger on the pulse, something else happens. And it's just, it's been two crazy years where we just haven't been able to predict what's happening. But if you look at it right now, it's still a very hot market. Are you a real estate investor looking to sharpen your skills or a newbie looking to become one? You're in the right place. Welcome to Where Should I Invest? Real Estate Investing in Canada with your host, Sarah Larby. Hey, everybody. It is Sarah Larby. You are listening to Where Should I Invest? And I literally just got back from the retreat at Inspire Beach Resort. And wow, like I knew we were going to do a good job, but this was just on a different level. And all of the guests, their feedback was just amazing. And we're going to do it again. We are going to be launching next year's retreat, Have Your Cake and Eat It Too, shortly. So reach out to me if you are interested in coming next year. We're going to limit the spots again, but I will tell you it was by far the best retreat I've ever been at. And uh, and the guests that came said the exact same thing as well. And so with that, this could be one of many retreats at Inspire Beach Resort. And that first cottage, by the way, is fully furnished by Angela from Lakeshore Designs. She did a beautiful job. It is the lodge-themed cottage. And I'll tell you, we, do- we did not spare any expenses. That whole cottage inside, it was 520 square feet cost $40,000 just for the furniture itself. And these cottages are going to have their own personal hot tub, their own personal barbecue, privacy. And I'll tell you, it's it's just surreal in a sense, right? When you have this concept, this vision to see it all come to life. After really ultimately just about a year, <laughs> we bought this piece of property a year ago and uh, in a year started transforming the vision into reality. So it is amazing. And during the retreat, we've met so many amazing people that have great stories. We had some amazing speakers, but I think it was just a great place to have a different type of experience. And I'll tell you, the food was amazing. We even had comments on our on our bathrooms and we ordered these porter potties, but they're called classy potties. But I'll tell you, they were actually amazing. And the reason that we did that is because we still had no hydro. <laughs> we had no hydro because these are the things that happen when you're doing development. You never know exactly what's going to happen. And we've been waiting for a hydro pole for, I want to say since March. And we are right now in August. And sometimes these are the things that happen. But look, we made it work. We had some generators. We like had, I think, the best events. And we are going to be doing it and launching it again next year. But you know what? It is it is a lot. I'm exhausted right now. I'm going to sit down at my cottage. Just got back there. And I'm going to have a glass of wine with Aisha. And we are going to discuss business ideas and enjoy enjoy the weekend. On that note, though, Dahlia was also there as a guest. And, and we go back a while because she's helped me scale my business and my portfolio. And it was nice to hang out with Dahlia as well from Streetwise Mortgages, just on a personal basis and just hanging out and talking and seeing different uh, things that she's up to and vice versa. But for today, though, there is today's tip of the week with Dahlia Barsoom from Streetwise Mortgages. Dahlia, what is today's tip of the week? Hi, I'm Dahlia, founder of Streetwise Mortgages, and in today's episode, I would like to share with you an emerging financing challenge that I have observed in the past two weeks. One of the things that we are seeing at the time of this recording in today's Ontario market is softening valuations for residential properties in some markets. 
Some clients who took on high leverage private money in the past six months to renovate and flip or to renovate and refinance are now experiencing challenges on exit as the after reno value of the property is lower than what they initially anticipated. Depending on how much debt was taken up front, some are seeing a shortage. That is, the refinanceable value or sellable price of the property is not sufficient to pay off all of the existing private debt attached to the property. If you are in the midst of a renovation and you have taken high leverage private mortgages or renovation loans in the past six months, given the softer valuations and tighter mortgage qualifications, it is crucial that you revisit your exit strategy with your mortgage advisor. Revisit your original assumptions and confirm that you will have sufficient money from the sale or the refinance to pay off the private capital. If you think you will run into a shortage or if you are currently in that situation, we have developed a framework to help reduce the pressure of monthly holding costs that are associated with expensive debts and to reduce or cure the shortage in funds. Here are the strategies. Number one. Depending on how large the shortage is, we can, we can look at opportunities within your portfolio to cover the shortage through a refinance or an equity takeout. Number two, we can look at paying off the existing private lender a portion of their funds through another cheaper private or traditional mortgage and see if any remaining shortage with that lender can be converted to a second mortgage with new terms on one or more properties within the portfolio. In the process of restructuring the debts, it is important to look at options where the collective monthly payments on the new debt are lower than the monthly payments on the previous debts. Number three. There are lenders on the street who provide reasonably priced unsecured loans. In some cases, we can tap into these funds to pay off some of the private money debt. Lastly, combining one or more of the debt restructuring tools that I just covered with an equity strategy where you can bring in a joint venture partner to the deal where he or she can buy into the property with a lump sum of a cash component and help qualify for cheaper financing. If you wish to discuss your best options for exiting private loans, contact our team at info at streetwisemortgages.com. Cheers to your success. Awesome. Thank you so much. That is great. And guys, Dahlia and her team have helped me tremendously. Reach out to them if you need anything from a financing standpoint, especially as we're now going into a lot of changes in the economy, changes in the mortgage lending criteria and so forth. So today's guest is Chad Griffith, who is a real estate investor. We talk about industrial properties and commercial properties. And so this is a, a bit of a new topic for this podcast, but there's a ton of great information. Feel free to look at the show notes, find out more about Chad, send him an email. And uh, if you have any questions about commercial industrial types of properties, this is going to be the podcast to listen to. Enjoy. Don't forget to leave a rating and review. Chad, welcome. How are you? I'm really good, Sarah. How about yourself? Good, good. So we've got a quite an interesting topic today, and we are going to be talking about something we haven't really covered on this podcast before. We are going to talk about 
industrial real estate investing and what we need to know around that. Before we do get into that piece, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got started. Yeah. And, and thanks so much for inviting me to be on the show. It's an honor to be here. So I got started in real estate in 2004. I actually, before I got into commercial real estate, I did a year of residential. So I joined a Remax office in 2004. I did it for about a year and just didn't really see a long-term fit for myself on, on doing evening and weekend showings and working those types of hours for, for my whole career. So I started exploring commercial in, in 2005, ended up joining a brokerage, which which focused predominantly on industrial real estate. And I didn't know what industrial real estate was at the time. I thought I'd be working in like office towers or shopping malls. And it just so happened that most of the people were involved in industrial. So just by sheer accident, I got into industrial in 2005. And I've actually been at the same brokerage ever since. And then in 2014, I started investing in properties myself. And with uh, with one main partner and a few other partners we brought along on, on different properties, we've pretty much added a property every year since. So it's it's been a very interesting ride, having known nothing about industrial real estate when I first got into it in 2005, to now I've got my, the majority of my net worth tied up directly in industrial real estate and I do it all day, every day. So it's, it's been quite the journey from, from the beginning. Amazing. And you don't have to necessarily work the same hours as, as a residential real estate broker or realtor. And it's, it's nice to see that you're also investing in, in the industrial. So, so what, what is this category of real estate investing? Like what, help us define that, what that, what that actually is. Cause there's lots of different kinds of commercial, this one's commercial industrial. And if you can share more insight. Yeah, great question. So I usually like to break industrial into three subcategories, one being warehousing. And that's, most people are probably pretty familiar with warehousing right now. It could be like a big Amazon distribution center, which I know that they're all over greater Toronto right now. We've got, we have four Amazon buildings that have come into our market in, in the last three years alone. And they're, they're everywhere. You see these big distribution centers in, in, every major market, even some secondary markets now. And those are buildings where basically things are just meant to be stored. So product could come in, it could be stored for an hour, it could be stored for several months. The whole idea is that things are just stored in these warehouses. The other main one is manufacturing. And these are all the buildings where things are, are actually made. So you can envision big machines, like it could be a CNC machine or a lathe, or just a, a big robotic arm that's meant to be doing repetitive tasks whether it's fastening things together or assembling things, these manufacturing buildings are, are where things are actually manufactured, produced, or assembled. The other third main category is kind of a catch-all, and it's we typically call it flex properties. And that's meant to describe all the properties that are that are zoned industrial. So with a municipality or whoever is regulating the, the market, they'll assign a zoning classification to every building. So there's some buildings that'll have a zoning classification, but they're not necessarily neatly meant to be manufacturing or warehousing. And you, and you could see buildings of all types, and, and I'm sure it's the same in, in your market where someone's listening. They'll see some buildings that are, that are industrial zone that are actually used by churches, art galleries, bottle depots, self-storage, even some straight office spaces. One of the properties that we own, it's, it's a true flex property. It's zoned industrial. It looks like an industrial building, but one of the tenants in there is a straight office space. So you do see like a full spectrum in that, in that flex category where it's not necessarily a manufacturing or warehouse space. Although those tenants could technically go into a flex property, but more often they're meant for the more generic types of uses. Awesome. So 
I mean, what I'm hearing is there is no like landlord tenant rules and regulations with like the RTA, like we have in Ontario that you have to go through a board. I think there's, you're probably dealing with more professionals and companies and that kind of stuff, but let's, let's talk about some of the benefits. Like what are the benefits of, of going this route or adding some of this to your portfolio? Yeah, you hit the nail on the head there. I think that that is a a huge perk of not just industrial, but even commercial, just more broadly. So extending that into like office and retail, I think one of those perks is, as you mentioned, is that you're you're not governed by the legislation, which is typically pretty heavy handed towards landlords and in favor of tenants. And rightfully so. I don't. I don't think anybody wants to see a family get put out on on the streets in in the middle of winter. So, understandably, there's a lot of regulation and and legislation protecting the tenants in that scenario. In commercial, for the most part, it's just straight contract law that oversees these commercial leases. So, in theory, whatever those two parties agree to is is going to be upheld in court barring anything crazy. Like over the last couple of years, there were some eviction moratoriums that popped up temporarily. So, but that was the, that was the first time I can think of something where, where the government had to really go beyond what's typical, but for the most part, the leases are just governed by contract law. And I think the, the other thing that becomes really appealing, particularly for myself, like we've, we've got a pretty decent sized portfolio right now. And to, for us to match that on the residential side, if we were going to be owning just multifamily or a series of single family houses, we would have had to have a considerable amount of of units under ownership to match the same. We've got about 20 tenants right now, which are all, all industrial tenants. For us to have the same amount of asset volume, we'd probably need to have a few hundred residential tenants. So just from the standpoint of, of managing 20 tenants, 20 commercial tenants, which are all corporations, which aren't calling us in the middle of the night if a toilet backs up or anything that that's pretty common in residential. We've got 20 tenants that we manage versus having to manage a few hundred. It's much more difficult to scale multifamily or residential properties as it is to scale commercial industrial. So I think those are a couple of the the main things. And then I guess the third one that I'd tack on there as well is that you typically have more longer term leases. Like it's not uncommon in commercial or industrial to see five, 10, even 15 year leases versus the more cyclical nature of residential where tenants might turn over every year or perhaps even more often in some cases. So you've got more stability. You've got longer term leases. You can make longer term plans with it. You don't have the same government oversight that that's found on the residential side. And the tenants by themselves are just typically going to be less management intensive just by nature that there's less of them. And they also just don't have the same demands that come at midnight on a Friday night. Yeah, all those points are very true and I'm sure have, have made your decision easy to to switch to that sort of strategy or that that type of property. When you're talking about industrial, can you touch upon the financing? Is there any difference in industrial financing and relative to commercial, which seems like the closest, the closest type of property and, and kind of break that down for us and what that would look like if I wanted to get involved in investing in industrial properties? What would I need to keep in mind and what would I need to be be careful of? Yeah, that's an excellent question. So for the most Part, it's it's pretty similar conceptually. The bank is going to want to have the security as, as collateral for the property. So they're going to be putting a mortgage on the property, but there are some stark differences. So the first thing that I'd say people should be aware of is that you're more likely to see a 15 to 20 year amortization. 
So versus I'm guessing residential is probably 25 and maybe some markets, you might be able to push that to 30. You're more likely in the 15 to 20 year range for amortization. You'll probably see a little bit of an increase over what some of the ultra competitive residential loans are as well. And I wouldn't say a stark difference, but maybe 25 to 50 basis points of an increase on, on a commercial or industrial loan versus residential. And then I'd say some of the, the other main differences that people need to be aware of is that the loan to value ratio is going to typically be a lot more competitive than residential. So an average commercial or industrial loan, assuming that you're getting it from like a, a big bank in Canada, you're probably going to need to put down 30 to 35% of a down payment versus some residential properties you can get considerably higher loan to value mortgages. So that's just one thing to be aware of. There, there's ways you can be creative. There are some other lenders that will do a higher loan to value, but then you're paying a higher interest rate, or you can get secondary mortgages or you can get the vendor to carry, but those, those are all going to come with a correspondingly higher interest rate. So if you're just going to like an RBC as an example, and you wanted to finance an industrial property, I'd be prepared that you're probably looking at a 15 to 20 year amortization. You'll be paying a little bit more in interest rate and they'll be requiring you to put down 30 to 35%. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is interesting. I mean, obviously when, when, when I'm hearing these, these 15 year terms, 20 year terms, I'm thinking cash flow may not be as good as, as it could be, but I could totally be wrong and I'm thinking I'm wrong. So maybe, maybe share, are you able to share like a piece of property that you recently bought yourself? And then just like what that actually looked like from adding the financing piece and, and what the numbers look like in terms of purchase price and cash flow and, and rent and all that good stuff. Yeah. And, and it's a great question. And you're right there. It, it might look like there'd be less cash flow, but surprisingly there's, there can be very healthy cash flow because you're putting down so much of, of a down payment. And that's, that's where you're making your spread from what you're getting what you're getting in rental income, less your expenses versus what you're paying in interest because you're only borrowing 65% of the property. You can actually still make a pretty good return. Then when you factor in a mortgage pay down and any appreciation in, in either the property or just top line revenue, a growth from rental income, then there's the real potential to make pretty good income. So I would typically value, evaluate a property on a few different metrics, like where you're buying it on a cap rate, where you're getting it on a cash on cash return, and then perhaps even doing like a five to 10 year pro forma and estimating what your internal rate of return would be. So there, there's a few different metrics on there, but it, it's not difficult to get a to get a nine, 10% cash on cash return or a double or a mid teens internal rate of return. So it, they can be very lucrative, but they also come with, with risk. And they also come with the fact that if you're buying a $3 million property, you might have to put down a million dollars versus buying a $3 million multifamily property. You could probably get a much better loan to value ratio from the bank. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors. Hey, are you looking for a reliable contractor for your next Burr multifamily conversion or flip project? Somebody who understands how to work with investors and also real estate investing itself. I've personally partnered with Lee Polak from Wise Construction. We're actively doing many projects together in Hamilton and Wellen. So things like smaller three and four unit conversions and also some larger buildings where we're converting 
some large empty commercial spaces into residential units. And it's always been important to meet a partner and hire a contractor who does not only high quality work, but is on time and on budget. And it's also a huge bonus that they have their own in-house trades employees and a warehouse full of building materials so that they can avoid the many labor and material shortages that we hear about often these days. A good project done on time, on budget, and with high quality work will be key to the success of your Burr multifamily conversion or flip project. So to connect with Lee from Wise Construction, text or phone him at 416-525-5951. Again, that is 416 416- Five two five five nine five one, and now back to the show. And now back to the show. So, are you able to share like an example though of like something that you purchased, like what that looks like? Is that was that a three million dollar deal that you had to put a million dollar down, or is that a little bit different? Yeah, the one we we bought when was two years ago. Now we bought a building in the in the. In, kind of an industrial park outside of our main area, but it's 15 minutes from our city. It's a major industrial park. We bought a building. It was about $3.1 million, single tenant building, Fortune 1000 company that's in there. There was four of us that went in on that and we put down about a million dollars on that. And our cash on cash would would be about that nine to 10% on there. There was, we bought it with four years left on the lease. So that tenant will be coming up now in two, two and a half years. So we're hoping that we can increase the the rent on the renewal, but it even makes sense as it is right now, just paying down the, the mortgage. And when we do cash flow on it, we, ha- we haven't even paid out a single dividend on that. We're just uh, either banking money and, or, or if we have the ability to, we make a, a payment on the mortgage as well. So it's, but that's a $3 million property. We have a million dollars of equity tied up in it. Yeah. I mean, it, it is interesting, especially like hearing you say you've got four years left on a lease, which in the commercial world, that is actually a good thing. And it's probably helpful for a financing lender to say, okay, there's, there's a term left versus, oh, it's empty, or there's like six months left. The longer term, the better versus in residential, if you can get the tenants out or vacant possession, like you're like sitting on a gold mine in many provinces, not all the provinces, but we love vacant properties in Ontario because you can reset rents rather than having to figure out your solution for somebody that's paying $500 for a $1,500 place. So I think that's definitely quite interesting. Let's, let's talk about like triple net leases and, and what that looks like, because I know the leases are different. They're more of a con. What, what does that look like from an industrial standpoint? Yeah, you're spot on. And that, and that is actually another great advantage of, of commercial and industrial properties. It's just like you said, they're triple net leases. So if for, people that hadn't heard that terminology before, unlike residential leases, which are typically gross in nature. So the landlord charges the tenant X amount, like $1,500, like you just mentioned, the landlord charges them $1,500. That might even include utilities. Perhaps utilities are included extra, but that includes the landlord's portion of the property taxes. That includes the landlord's insurance condominium fees, if they have any, that's all included in that rental payment. Whereas on the commercial industrial side, that's actually broken out so that the tenant will pay one amount, which is typically called net rent. Sometimes it's called base rent as well. And then they'll also pay all the costs of operating the building. So simple example, using that one that we have in in the market called NISCU, it's a single tenant building. So any of the costs regarding property taxes, building insurance, common area maintenance, management, that all gets passed through to the tenant. 
And not only does the tenant pay those expenses, but they also pay any increases in those expenses. And that's really the key part there, because if you were to do a five-year lease with a tenant and you did a gross lease on there, if property taxes went up 10% or 15% one year, which is what you're probably going to see in Toronto, we're probably going to see it in our market too. That would quickly erode the amount of revenue that you have coming in. Whereas on a triple net lease, the whole intent of it, provided that it's worded correctly in the lease, is that any increase in any of those expenses related to operating the building flow through to the tenant. And that just provides comfort knowing that the net rent or the base rent is going to be agreed upon for the whole term of the lease. And then any increases get passed through to the tenant and they agree to pay it. Yeah, absolutely. Aisha, sorry, go ahead. Oh, that's okay. I was just, I just wanted to touch upon, I was just thinking about the, the industrial properties and, and in terms of like appreciation, do they appreciate like how residential properties do? What does that look like? Like how, how much will my property increase? And did you see such a drastic change during the pandemic that we saw in the residential sector? I'm just trying to understand that market. I've never really considered it or thought about it. So it's, it's I'd love to, to hear your Thought. Yeah, I, I, I've been doing this for a while and I'm still trying to understand it. This, the last two years here were unlike anything I've ever seen. It was just even like the 2009 recession where that everything was up in the air and volatile then. I've never seen anything like we've seen over the last two years. And different asset classes certainly responded differently. Like I think office is still going to struggle for a while. I like, I'm guessing all, all three of us are probably working from home right now. looks like all of our backgrounds are, are from home. I think that that's, that's not just uh, for us. I think that there's workers all over the world that just do not want to go back to the office. So I think that that market still has some pain ahead of it. And it was greatly affected. Like there's, there's times where 10% of the office space was, was physically being used and 90% of the people were at home. So it's starting to come back. We're seeing more people in office space now. Retail was, was pretty mixed, good, high quality retail. And I'm sure much like myself, you guys would probably experience this as well Is even though, even through the pandemic, you still had to go get groceries. There's still things that you just had to do. So there's some retail that did really well. And then there's other retail, like a gym or, or anything where, where the, your close quarters that really struggled. Industrial was unique. So that when, when this all came on in, in March of 2020, it was just craziness. Like there's three months where like, it just, it seemed like nothing was happening. Everyone was just was afraid. They're unsure on what, how to respond to all of this. And that affected the industrial market as well, because nothing happened. Then after uh, coming into like July, August of that year, things just started going crazy. And I don't know if it's just everybody was shopping from home. So there's more warehouse space that was needed. People were still buying things. It was, it's not like people stopped about buying things. They just stopped buying it from physical stores and had it ordered online and had it delivered to their house. So industrial has done very, very well over the last 18 months, call it. And you, you'll see it like in Toronto right now, the vacancy rate for industrial is under 1%, which is unheard of. Like that's, that is so hard to even imagine. And, and your market is about a billion square feet worth of industrial space. That's the thing that a lot of people don't fully uh, appreciate as well is that there's like a billion square feet in just one market. Your guys' market is a billion square feet. Like that's, that's an unfathomable number to me. And 99% of that is occupied. So it, that, that's been a trend all across industrial as a whole. How that comes into 2022 now when we're seeing higher interest rates, 
there's a, a risk of, of a recession, there's higher inflation, there's all these things coming at us that I don't like, I, I honestly don't know. I, I, every time I think I've got my finger on the pulse, something else happens. And it's just, it's been two crazy years where we just haven't been able to predict what's happening. But if you look at it right now, it's still a very hot market. There's, there's more tenants looking for space than there is space. Uh, prices keep going up. And, and maybe a roundabout way of, of answering your question as well. Prices in, in these hot markets specific to industrial have certainly appreciated greatly. And it, it, it this goes back to kind of e-commerce becoming a lot more popular over the last 10, 20 years even. The pandemic certainly accelerated it and it made people that before were were maybe a little reticent to order something online. Like my parents, as an example, they, they loved going to stores, but when, when they had to be at home, all of a sudden they're ordering things online and now they're comfortable with it. But that, that was like, I was ordering stuff online for 10 years now. So there's, there's been a migration away from like that brick and mortar retailers to, to warehousing space. And that's, fueled a boom in the, in the industry. More specific to my market, I'm, I'm in like an oil and gas market. So we've been, we've been under duress for seven years now with really low oil prices, but now we're, and you guys, I'm sure feel this too, because I, I filled up my car today. It was a hundred dollars. I didn't even fill up the whole tank. So the oil is definitely increased and that should increase the rest of our real estate. But overall industrial has done very, very well over the last 10 years. Yeah. I mean, it, it is fascinating. And like to, even just to hear that there's a, a less than 1% vacancy uh, and I, and I believe it, I believe it because like, look at all of these stuff that we order online. It comes yep. from these warehouses. But my question is like, why, why are these Amazons of the world renting versus not just, well, I don't know, building their own? Uh, yeah. And interestingly enough, they have started to shift their mandate where they they have said this year, coincidentally, and so it's good timing on your question. They have said that they want to start owning the, their own property. The main reason that that I think that most companies don't, and it's not just Amazon, but a lot of large companies don't own their real estate. And I think that they just look at it as a pure investment play. If they had to take and let's just use that, that warehouse that, that, that I have. It's a, it's a Fortune 1000 company that's in there. They could very easily afford to do it. But if they had to take a million dollars to use as a down payment for that, could they take that million dollars and instead look to grow another product line? Could they expand into another market? Could they buy some equipment or machinery? Or could, could they buy inventory? And where would they make the best return on their money? And most companies, when they go through that exercise, they just determine we can make a better return by investing inside of our business as opposed to owning the real estate. And I mean, intuitively, that makes sense, right? If, if you're in business of doing something, exporting or importing or manufacturing, that's, that's what you should be focusing on, not tying up your money in the actual real estate, which is historically going to earn much less of a return than, than a company can generate using that money inside their company. So that, that's the main reason that, that companies don't. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors. This week's podcast is brought to you by usproperties.ca. Are you looking to invest in turnkey US real estate that provides exceptional cash flow and appreciation? If so, reach out to James at james at usproperties.ca or visit the company website, usproperties.ca for more information. And now back to the show. Right. I mean, it makes sense. I guess they're not in the real estate business per se. They're in the business of, of whatever it is that they, they do. 
So similar to, to real estate investing, we always talk about the fundamentals. We talk about the due diligence. We get something under contract, there's due diligence. I'm guessing there's something similar, but probably a little bit different also for the industrial piece, whether it's a phase one, phase two environmental that we've got to do. What are some of the fundamentals? What are some of the things that we want to do for either analyzing if this is a great property or not? And what are some like common due diligence items that maybe exist for industrial that may not exist for residential? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because that, that is also quite different from the residential standpoint. It's very similar in the fact that you're going to have a contract conditional upon a, a, a obtaining certain things, but unlike residential where, where it might only be a week or two week conditional period, on the commercial industrial side, it can very easily be six to eight weeks and in some cases even longer. So that's just one thing to be prepared of is that the time of going through the due diligence is, is a lot more extensive and it also comes with a pretty big cost. So doing an average property, assuming that there isn't a, something current or recent from the, the seller, you're going to have to do an appraisal. You're going to have to do it, like you said, a phase one environmental report. Hopefully you don't have to do a phase two because that gets really expensive and it takes even longer. And then you'll have to do an inspection, which is usually called like a building condition assessment or an engineered condition assessment. I've heard all different types of terms. I usually call it just a building condition assessment. And each one of these takes time and each one of them has a cost. So the, the cost can vary quite a bit. So I'll just kind of give some ballpark ones on, on what I've seen. But for a phase one environmental, you're probably $3,000, depending on if, if people are really busy in Toronto right now or Vancouver or some of these other really busy markets, it could be even more. But $3,000 for an environmental, you're probably looking at $3,000 for an appraisal and you're probably looking three dollars to $4,000 for a building condition assessment. So for someone that's going to go in and put a property under conditions, not only are they gonna to have to spend six to eight weeks of time, but they're probably gonna to have to spend 10 grand. And that's, that's in uh, not even including whether they have a lawyer that's reviewing all the leases, if there are any, or any of the other documents or any specialized reports that they need to have. $10,000 can go pretty quickly. And if for whatever reason, the bank doesn't give them financing, or if they find something they don't like, that's essentially a sunk cost. So you can, you can appreciate Tying up a property and having to spend 10 grand without even any certainty of, of, of buying it is it, it takes a lot of courage to entertain that scenario. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that sounds like a, a lot more closing costs than we're used to, I think. Yes. <laughs> or even setting up to, to put in the offer, really. And another thought I was having is exit strategy. Like, what's the percentage of people out there looking to buy industrial properties? And when you want to, to get out, is it something where it's sitting, are you waiting for that select group of people who are out there looking to invest in something like this? Because it does come at a big cost. Likely you do have to have partners. So I, I think it is a select portion of the real estate investing population. So kind of what does that look like in terms of get, being on the market, even searching for, for industrial properties? Are they on the market long? Or when you're looking to sell, is it easy to find a buyer? I think that speaks perfectly to the downside of investing in industrial real estate. Whereas I, I mentioned some of those reasons why I'm so in favor of it earlier. I also caution people quite often that industrial real estate can be a very scary place to invest in if you don't understand it really well. And exactly how you describe that is, is probably the biggest risk that's out there is that you get stuck with a property that for whatever reason just doesn't have appeal to the market whether it's maybe the tenant left and now it's now it's a vacant property maybe it had something unique about the property that that made it 
different from what the competition is. And so that by, by that reason, it costs money to rectify. There's a number of things that can go wrong. And even finding a buyer, like you're saying, it's, it's a much smaller pool of investors looking at industrial than there would be looking at a single family house or multifamily. So for various reasons, that can be a huge deterrent. And, and it should, it should be like the fear factor that, that prevents people that aren't prepared to fully understand what the asset is and understand everything that can go wrong. That should be scary. Now I I've, I've got the confidence myself that I know the market quite well. So I, if I'm looking at a property, I've got a pretty good understanding that if that property were to go vacant, this, this is what it'd be competing with. This is what I think the value was. If I had to sell it as an empty building, if the tenant defaulted for any reason, I've got a pretty good level of comfort on that myself. And most astute investors will as well, because they're just committing time to understanding what's happening in the market, what the trends are, what that property be worth if it's vacant. And if you have a very good understanding of that, then, then I think you're equipped to handle any anything that, that could go wrong. And if you think of it in like that worst case scenario perspective, then you might you might win on on some and you might lose on on the odd one. But overall, as long as you're getting more runs in than you're getting struck out, then you should be able to win the baseball game, I guess, from a, a bad metaphor standpoint. But you're right. Like, I think that that is the single biggest risk with industrial real estate is that you get stuck with a property that you can't sell or release. Whereas multifamily or single family house, there's always going to be a tenant that needs a house, right? Providing there isn't like a huge surplus, like 20% vacancy in a market. If the vacancy rate is, is pretty low and you're competitive with your lease rates, you're always going to be able to find a tenant. Whereas an industrial, that's not necessarily the case. So I, I think that that brings up a, an excellent point that people just need to be prepared of. There's a lot of upside, but with that upside, it's kind of like a pendulum, right? On if, if you've got a potential for a lot of upside for things that could go right, well, when that pendulum swings the other way, there can also be a lot of potential for downside. So I, that's a fantastic point to bring up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then if you're stuck with it and you're, you've got $1 million of your, your cash in and you're all of a sudden two mil of, of financing, then uh, with one, one tenant that can fit in there, it is definitely, it's not for the faint of heart. If somebody is starting out though, and, and they're like, okay, well, you, you talked about yourself, you talked about investors that have done this for a while, but like if somebody does want to explore this opportunity a little bit more or start looking and making some offers on, on industrial, like what are maybe first, second, third steps for them? First thing I would do, well, two things in tandem I would do. First, see if there's somebody in the local market that's already done it. So someone that maybe already owns property and they've gone through this process. See if you could just piggyback with them. Maybe your contribution is providing some of the equity and their contribution is helping navigate through the process so that that you avoid one of those catastrophic mistakes. And then I'd, al I'd also just start surrounding yourself with a team. So a, a broker is always a great resource. Someone that specializes specifically in the market that you're looking to do. If you can get a banker involved early, some of the other specialists, like depending on, on what you need to do, like an architect, a lawyer, an accountant, like the, having a well-rounded team, like, like any real estate acquisition, really, it, it involves having a competent team of professionals that then help guide you through it. And I think if you, if you commit to trying to get someone to do use as a mentor or, or perhaps as a partner, have a team surrounding you and then just commit to learning everything that you can about the industry. I think that puts you in a, in a position where, where I, I think very highly of this asset class, I, you can capitalize on that, but 
equally as important, you can mitigate that downside risk that you have. So those would be the three things that I'd say, find someone that's done it before, build a solid team around you and just learn everything you can about it. Okay. And you also have a YouTube channel. I believe that you share some insights about this specific market segment. Yeah, I'm a full on industrial real estate nerd. Like I, as, as you can probably tell, I just, I love talking about this. So going back to the pandemic, when that started in 2020 and, and there's three months of downtime, I just, I had some extra time and I, I just couldn't sit still. I, I, I have a hard time like getting my mind to turn off. So I thought, I, I love talking about this. I've, I've got some things that I can share, not just as a broker, but as an investor myself. So I put the wheels in motion, started in August officially of 2020. And I just tried to provide as much information as I can. I pride myself. I don't talk about my company. I've, I've never once mentioned the company that I work for. I've never, I don't even think I've mentioned what city I, I live in because I just want it to be kind of like a value add channel where I can just provide some information. If it's helpful for people, great. And if they don't like it, then they can hit the thumbs down button and I'll I'll get a signal about that. So that's yeah, just, it's been fun. I, I've really enjoyed doing it. Amazing. That's awesome. I'm going to have to check it out. What's the name of the show? It's, I, I think it's just my name. Like the channel is just my name, Chad Griffiths, CRE, but I have a podcast as well called the industrial real estate show. And I've just interviewed a number of professionals, like architects and engineers and property developers. And so that's all tied in there as well. But I'm pretty, there's not many people talking about industrial real estate. So if you even just search industrial real estate, you'll find a video of mine, I'm sure. Amazing. Do you offer any like coaching, any classes, anything that people can subscribe to other than the YouTube and, and the podcast? I, I don't, but I've had, I've had the fortune of actually probably giving like informal you know, consulting to people that have just inquired for free. I've, I've just, I've been pretty fortunate in my career. I've made a good living and, and I've done it in large part to people that helped me out along the way when I first started. So I've just, I've, I've kind of taken the approach that if I can help somebody out and, and I've probably talked to three or four dozen people now over the last year and a half, just if they had a question, I just get on a zoom call. So I'm not organized nor profit driven enough to, to set something up more formal than that right now. Maybe that changes down the road. If, if the, if it just gets to a level where I can't answer everyone's call, but I'm, I'm pretty open at just jumping on a call for half an hour with, with virtually anybody that wants to talk. Amazing. I'm sure you're, I'm sure people listening to this are going to take you up on that. So that, that is awesome. I mean, this was really insightful. I can tell you this is an, an industry and a market segment I'm super interested in, and I don't know a whole lot about it. And so I, I really want to say thank you for, for sharing your knowledge. But the next part of the podcast, before we do wrap up, is our lightning round. So we are going to ask you five questions that every guest gets the same ones. You're going to give us the first answer that comes to mind in like 10 seconds or less. You ready? I'm ready. All right, here we go, Chad. Question number one, what is your favorite real estate investing book? Can I pivot and give a movie? Sure. Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. All right, awesome. I'm sure that there's a book version of it too. <laughs> so, so yeah, absolutely. I'm sure there is. However, here's another question then, because I'm curious if there is an investing book about this specific topic that we just discussed. Is there any, like a, maybe it's a course book in university or something on industrial real estate? I don't know. I do have one. So there, there's a book written by a guy named Robert Ringer. And this book is old. It's probably, it's probably 40 years old. It's called uh, 
to be or not to be intimidated. It had, it had another name before, and then he changed his name for some reason, but it is a fascinating book about the commercial real estate industry. I've actually read it a couple of times and I've recommended it a lot as well. So I think it's, I think the title is to be or not to be intimidated by Robert Ringer. Okay. Awesome. Great. Hey, and the second question is what do you do for, well, I I'm a, uh, father. So I spent a lot of time at the rink in the winter and I spent a lot of time on the, on the baseball field in the summer. But when I, the limited amount of time that I do have, I, I read a lot. I do the odd Lego project and I try to just sleep whenever I can get a little bit of time. So that's probably my, what I would say actually I do for fun is I sleep. That's, <laughs> that's, that's my main thing. Sleep. So awesome. Number three, I don't know if you're a podcast listener. I know you have a YouTube show and a podcast, but other than yours, other than mine, is there a favorite podcast? It's funny. When I got into podcasting, I wasn't a big fan of podcasting, but now I, I listen to a ton of podcasts. I, no, none in particular really jump out. I've, I've subscribed to probably a dozen or so. And I just, depending on the mood or, or what I, I like to I'll listen to a lot of them when I'm driving, but yeah, I'll have to say yours. Let's that that sounds like a, I mean, like other, a other good than solid answer. Well, it's uh, I'm a bit I'm a bit of a rule breaker, so I'm 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 going with yours. <laughs> okay, and if someone has fifty dollars and wants to get started in real estate investing, what would 50, be your 50, advice? 000, fifty thousand dollars. Yeah, fifty thousand to get cut off. Fifty thousand. I would say either joint venture or or partner with someone that can that can do it as well or start small because I, I think if if you start small you can your your losses are automatically mitigated just by the sheer purchase price. But so I I'd either start small with like a either a single family house or or a small commercial condo or partner with someone. Okay. All right. Last question. If you lost everything tomorrow, all of your industrial real estate, all your assets, all your money, how would you start again? I, I would do the exact same thing that, that I did is I started my career by just trying to build as many solid relationships as I could. So just getting to know people really well, building a relationship on trust. So they didn't think I was trying to take something from them, but always trying to add, add value wherever I could and, and be helpful. And I, I would start again by just trying to rebuild relationships with, with people that I had and taking a long-term approach as opposed to trying to get, get it all back within like a month. Okay. All right. Great answers. Chad, thank you for playing the lightning round. Where can my listeners and investors reach out and find out more? YouTube's great or email is griffiscre at gmail.com. And I try to reply to all the emails that I get as well. Amazing. Chad, thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. That was a great discussion. Really enjoyed it. Hey guys, before you go, I wanted to ask you a question. What's stopping you from starting or growing your own real estate investment portfolio? I know for me, before I started, I had plenty of reasons, and at the time, they all seemed very valid, but as I started my journey, these reasons slowly fell away, and eventually, only one reason remained. What was actually stopping me was having a proven, actionable, repeatable system. I didn't have that, and the way that was going to change was by investing in myself, learning, listening, and looking for ways that worked, and also, most importantly, discovering what didn't and not making those mistakes again. Fast forward to today, I now have a proven, repeatable series of action steps that has enabled me to build my seven-figure portfolio consisting of multiple homes, and I'm able to manage that in two to three hours a month. Is that something that you would want? Well, I've actually taken all the knowledge I've accumulated and put that into a comprehensive step-by-step -step online program 
It's called Rise, and it's a program that will help you from where you are now to where you want to be faster and with less of the headaches that I had. So it consists of all the templates and the resources that I use, plus over 40 instructional videos that you get lifetime access to for just a small one-time investment. And, you know, my recommendation is to make the time now to invest in yourself and grow your portfolio to seven figures so that you can bring your retirement dreams closer. If you want some more information about Rise, just go to sarahlarby.com forward slash R-I-S-E to access more details and book your spot. Thanks so much for listening to Where Should I Invest with your host, Sarah Larby. Make sure to listen in next time. We'll catch you on the next episode of Where Should I Invest.